Hello, you're listening to episode 70 of Sass Milk Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. In Caliente, a 1935 musical from Warner Brothers First National, has a surface plot about Edward Everett Horton taking Pat O'Brien to a Mexican resort so he doesn't marry a Sassmouth dame, played by Glenda Farrell. But once they arrive at the famous resort, Agua Caliente, another story develops. It's the story of a woman's revenge. Dolores Del Rio plays a dancer named Rita Gomez. She discovers that the man who had written a bad review of her act is staying in the same hotel. The bad review from Larry MacArthur, Pat O'Brien's character, resulted in canceled bookings and a loss of income for Rita. She wants to get even. What Rita doesn't know is that the critic was on a bender, stinko drunk, and doesn't even remember her act before he trashed it for an influential New York arts magazine. Dolores' thirst for revenge calls to mind a story that Fay Ray shared in her memoir. One night at a dinner party, the subject turned to Gary Cooper's new romance with Lupe Velez. Everyone at the table speculated about what he saw in Lupe. A man present who was a writer replied that he knew exactly what Gary saw in her. She had fire. Then the man turned to Dolores and said, you would do well to have some of that. Faye recalled that if you had watched Dolores, you wouldn't think the comment had really gotten to her. By all appearances, Dolores remained placid, calm, serene. But before the dinner was over, Dolores had decided on a plan for revenge. She was resolved to get back at the writer. Dolores coaxed the writer's wife, who is a bit fragile and open to suggestion, into having an affair with one of the writer's friends. Faye noted it didn't matter to her that the writer didn't know. She knew. Dolores Del Rio once spoke of her sense of pride, which she described as being like a sword that one carries inside like a backbone. Dolores had pride. She was self-possessed. She would not allow a man to belittle her. The writer who made the callous remark had obviously never seen The Loves of Carmen from 1925. Under Raoul Walsh's direction, Dolores Del Rio is the personification of fire and passion, and she's out for revenge on every man, men who grovel for her affections. Walsh remembered one scene in the picture where a man brings a bouquet of roses, Dolores takes one of the long-stemmed roses and whips the man with it over and over. He said audiences went wild. In Caliente turns a woman's revenge into a work of art choreographed with as much style as Dolores Del Rio has on the dance floor. In the opening scene, the camera closes in on a door with gorgeous art deco lettering which announces the office for Manhattan Madness magazine. Pat O'Brien plays the editor and chief art critic. But audiences see behind the curtain right away. O'Brien's character has shot glasses for a critical lens. When he attends live performances, plays, a dance recital, or music, he can't remember what he saw, so he depends upon a little help in the office. The scene plays out in breakneck speed. 
O'Brien tosses out a negative comment about an orchestra he was supposed to remember having seen. Edward Everett Horton adds a word or two. Pacing and impatient, Pat asks his secretary, played by Florence Fair, to read back what they have so far. Without batting an eyelash, the secretary reads her translation of the men's gibberish. It becomes polished, an insightful take on the concert. The gag really works because the men believe it's their work. This scene is a total piss take on big, important men behind the desk. If not for the industry of women in the office, the men would be out on the breadline. While men strut around and take all the money and credit, women do all the work. I'm sure the screenwriters Jerry Wald and Julius Epstein also enjoyed taking a pot shot at critics who make their money shredding the blood, sweat, and tears of other writers. At the Mexican resort, one guest tells Edward Everett Horton that the mariachi players are really grifters and adds that Dolores Del Rio's Rita is the come on. She lures the men in so that Leo Carrillo can empty their pockets. Horton plans to enlist Rita as a distraction to keep Pat O'Brien from marrying our Class A gold digger, Glenda Farrell. Horton finds Dolores poolside. She wears an immaculate white two-piece swimsuit that complements her sun-kissed skin. Horton offers her $2,000 to keep Pat occupied. She improvises a plan to get into trouble in the water so that Pat will have to jump in and save her. Dolores executes high swan dives, and she has a strong swimming stroke. Even in the pool, she's graceful and glamorous, which is hard to pull off. The little ruse doesn't work, though, not the way she plans, when Pat sinks to the bottom and she has to save him. This is a woman's picture, after all, and a showcase for women who are more competent than men, just like the secretary was in the opening scene. The twist in the arranged seduction occurs when Dolores learns that Pat was the man who wrote the bad review the last year. Pat's review caused her to lose all that money, and she has it committed to memory. She recites some of his withering remarks, that she was a bag of bones and soup without the onions. Dolores vows to Leo Carrillo that she will make the critic pay. Oh, but not in money. She will humiliate him. She'll make him fall in love with her, and then she'll laugh at him. In a series of stunning white gowns from Ori Kelly, mainly satin cut at the bias and draped with chiffon, Dolores goes into the routine to make Pat fall like a ton of bricks. After she informs him of her afternoon cocktail ritual, he shows up at her door, but she doesn't allow him to enter. She throws a pillow out the window so he can sit on the ground. Then she sips on a libation, which she does not offer to share. At the climax of her plan, Dolores arranges to dance one night in the resort. Pat sits in the audience, unaware that Dolores' stage name is Espanita. She has a copy of his review from last year sent to the table before she takes the stage. The newspaper clipping says, quoting Pat's review, 
When the dance becomes merely the progression of a bag of bones across a stage, I will appreciate the dancing of the curiously famous Espanita. The Senorita made her New York debut at the garden last night and left me strangely cold. When I eat onion soup, I like it with onions. I like my dancing with at least a pinch of that certain appeal. Espanita's appearance last night was certainly onion soup without the onions, not even one fragrant Spanish scallion. Now we know why Dolores wants his head on a platter or dunked in a soup tureen. Imagine the effrontery. Who would dare refer to Dolores Del Rio as a bag of bones or a bland dish? The number that Dolores performs is called muchacha, and it's bananas. Dolores wears a white gown festooned with long fringe. It's set in an old saloon. Banditos storm the place on horseback, ripping off bits of women's clothing and charging up the stairs astride white stallions. Phil Regan pursues Dolores. Instead of falling for him, she whips him across the face so that he tumbles down the flight of stairs. Then she sings the chorus of Muchacha. Behold the chief of the bandit brigade. Behold a bandit who isn't afraid of anything but a Mexican maid in Caliente. She dances with a grace that speaks of serious training. She's not like when uh, Joan Fontaine or Paulette Goddard trotted out a few simple steps when they were paired next to Fred Astaire. At one point, Dolores twirls and lands on top of a bar. That's not something you can pick up after a week of rehearsal. While she dances, Dolores carries a look of pure ecstasy on her face. She experiences and demonstrates unabashed pleasure and confidence in her own body that's so rare and it's so important to see. She owns her flawless beauty. Ori Kelly once noted that during a fitting, she looked at herself in the mirror and said, Jesus, I am beautiful. Busby Berkeley choreographed the musical numbers. He worked with Dolores Del Rio for Bird of Paradise in 1932, which was a big hit. So was his work with her in Flying Down to Rio, where she's really overshadowed by Ginger and Fred making their film debut. Buzz worked with Dolores on Wonder Bar in 1934 and I Live for Love, which was her next picture after In Caliente. Dolores noted that when Buzz joined a production, he always acted as an independent director, separate from the official director on the set. Dolores noted that when this happened, it was like making a movie within a movie. For the Muchacha number, Buzz wanted to use a couple of horses in the barnyard scene. He went to the producer, Hal Wallace, and told him he would need cows, chickens, and a bunch of other animals to stage the production. Wallace blew his top and shouted that it would send costs through the roof and delay production. Berkeley said he would settle for a couple of horses, and he got a couple of horses just like he had planned. Buzz learned to ask for more than what he wanted so he could appear to settle for less and make the front office happy. The horses were difficult to maneuver on a tightly crowded set. At one point, a whistle blew. The horses were spooked and charged loose on a rampage. 
There's so much noise and so many people on this set. It's a wonder someone wasn't killed in the stampede that followed. The horses later retreated to graze on the back lot. It took hours, though, to get them back on set. During production, Buzz had a practice he called hanging the dollies. Buzz set up an easel board with geometric patterns outlined in chalk. He inserted hooks pinned to the board where the, where the lines crossed. On the hooks, he hung tiny dolls so that he could see what the girls would look like on camera. Buzz initially rehearsed with a small core of dancers before the larger groups were assembled. In Caliente is a treat not only does Dolores look incredible, I mean, did anyone on screen have better skin or better posture? She's fun to watch when she toys with Pat O'Brien. There's also this running joke about the resort. Agua Caliente is a playground for the rich, but it also has a policy to soak the rich. Leo Carrillo has this three-card Monty side hustle. Mariachis accept money to stop playing. And they beg off with English that isn't so good-looking until a man pulls dead presidents from his wallet. The supporting cast is a delight, as it usually is in the case of a Warner's production. Pat O'Brien is one of my favorites. He always turns a mug into a swoon swoon merchant. Even playing a chronic blackout drunk as he is here, he's charming mostly because he's a good sport about taking, being taken to the cleaners by women. I love him in the pool scene, and with a trim waistline and hair, he can get it. Edward Everett Horton in a turtleneck is a sight to behold. Winnie Shaw exudes such potent sexuality during the Lady in Red number. She wears this red lace and velvet gown, and when she's lighting the candle, she could have set the whole set on blaze, by all the lust she inspires in men. Judy Canova may not be your cup of tea, but I enjoyed watching her make Edward Everett squirm. And since I have had to endure red skeletons stinking up a score of women's pictures, then you can endure Judy Canova. Glenda Farrell is a tonic. She excelled playing characters who could drain a man's bank account in her sleep. Glenda is a full professor in sassmouth economics. In the opening scene, the way she breezes in and leaves with a blank check is as satisfying to me as a trip to the salon. Glenda Farrell made it her business to always get her man's wallet. The Warner Archive DVD has a beautiful restored print. It's great to see the exteriors of the famous resort, the Mexican Monte Carlo, I always connect it with a story in Raoul Walsh's memoir. He went there to Agua Caliente to forget about Gloria Swanson after their steamy affair ended when Sadie Thompson wrapped in 1928. Raoul was a man with horse racing in his blood, and some of the finest ponies ran at the track in Agua Caliente, along with libations, a gambling casino, and other adult pleasures. During Prohibition, Agua Caliente was the hot spot for the film colony. Oftentimes, when people discuss Dolores del Rio, they emphasize that she was coded as white or European in Hollywood. 
the color line never hampered her choice of roles and co-stars. While such stars as Anna Mae Wong was paired with white leading men in silent pictures by the time the Hayes Code was enforced in 1934, cross-racial romance was forbidden on screen. The rules, however, did not limit Dolores Del Rio. From the beginning of her career, she was styled as the female Valentino. During her first week in Hollywood, a publicist circulated stories in the press which reported Dolores's wealth and class position in her family and also of her husband's family, Jaime Del Rio. Dolores was often called the richest woman in Mexico. One early story said that Dolores owned $50,000 worth of shawls and hair combs. Another story reported that she had 600 bottles of perfume. Coupled with her jaw-dropping beauty, her position amongst the Mexican aristocracy meant that she was defined by her European heritage rather than mestizo. Dolores played a variety of roles, white, biracial, and racially ambiguous characters, without drawing censure from the motion picture producer distribution agency's agenda. She often played peasant girls and gypsies. Dolores told a reporter in London, poor people aren't taught from childhood to hide all of their sentiments. They are more free in expression, and that's what I like to interpret. In numerous interviews early in her career, Dolores longed for independence. She was always under someone's control, whether it was her family's class, her time in the convent, marriage, or her roles in Hollywood. It's significant that Dolores never disavowed her Mexican heritage. There's a really interesting article I found which interrupts this narrative about Dolores Del Rio's whiteness. In an issue of Photoplay magazine, staff writer Mitzi Cummings profiles Dolores on her beauty regimen. You and I have read a thousand different versions of this copy. Until the end of time, there will always be an audience for stars who talk about their beauty secrets. Amid the usual stuff about drinking eight glasses of water each day, avoiding alcohol, being disciplined, and getting lots of sleep, Dolores offers an unexpected revelation. And it isn't the bit about cooked fruit for breakfast or how milk isn't fattening. Dolores claims one essential ritual, which is based on her indigenous ancestry. The magazine article says, Dolores uses no oils, no creams. She exposes her body to the sun during the hottest weather, sometimes as long as four hours daily, yet she has never burned or dried her skin. But this, she hastens to add, is because of her heritage. And no one, unless he is descended as she is from the ancient Toltecs of Mexico, who worshipped the sun and took it constantly, should try to emulate her. Sunbathing, incidentally, is Miss Del Rio's one ritual. She considers it nature's great cure for nerves, and she cannot stress its value too strongly. But you, she points out, and you and you should take it easy. Expose in the morning, use oil, regulate your increasing amount of sun daily, and don't think just because you haven't Toltecs back of you that you can start the line going. It won't work. Rather than summon European roots, Dolores claims indigenous ancestry, 
that she does so in relation to beauty culture and glamour is remarkable, subversive, and totally unexpected. The way she cautions photoplay readers against spending the same length of time in the sun makes white skin sound like a disadvantage in the quest for beauty. Dolores soothes her nerves for half a day in the sun and as a result has a radiant skin thanks to the Toltecs. Dolores Del Rio observed, it was there in Hollywood that I began my life. That is to say, I discovered myself. Dolores decided that her goal was to become, she says, known worldwide as the most important actress of Mexico. Edwin Carew, who began a career in Hollywood as an actor and later as a director, met Dolores and her husband Jaime in Mexico City. He invited them to move to Hollywood and, and work in motion pictures. Dolores's cousin, Ramon, Ramon Navarro, was already there making pictures. Although they were from conservative families, Jaime did not object initially to Dolores becoming an actress. Carew finally convinced them when he sent the script for Joanna, which became the first picture Dolores made. The Del Rios moved to California in 1925. Directed by Carew, he took control over her early career, but ultimately their relationship had an acrimonious end. Carew had driven a wedge between husband and wife. He usurped Jamie's traditional role as husband. The two men battled for control over Dolores. Jaime worried that she was steered into roles that would harm her reputation or that exploited her sexually. Carew insisted that he knew what was best for Dolores. He wrote, with that face, those eyes, those lips, one doesn't have to undress Dolores to give her sex appeal. That is for beauties that only have a body. Dolores has sex charm in a thick overcoat. Dolores explained the dynamic between the two men and the toll that it took on her. When I first came into movies, I was a modest little girl full of hope. I struggled a great deal before I triumphed, and I was able to open a path. And when my aspirations became reality, I fell into the claws of slander. The love of a man whom I had never been personally involved romantically embittered my life permanently. Because of this love, which was completely contrary to my own feelings, I was forced to divorce my first husband, Jaime Del Rio. We loved each other very much, but Jaime's unjustified jealousy, a result of calumny and backbiting, destroyed our conjugal harmony. That poor man died far from me, and they say, as a consequence of our separation. Jaime tried to make a go of it as a screenwriter than a playwright and a novelist, but he could not escape the dread feeling that came with being the husband of a film star. He told a reporter that the husband of a rising star should obliterate himself. And so he did. He died of blood poisoning in Berlin in 1928. Dolores had already tired of Carew's fantasy that they would one day marry long before Jaime's un, un, premature death. Carew sold her contract to Joe Skank at uh, United Artists for more than half a million dollars, a huge sum at the time. 
Carew was probably not yet through being a thorn in her side. He launched a lawsuit and encouraged her former lawyer to do the same. And ultimately, she had to pay them both. Whether it was a matter of convenience or of love, Dolores met a man in 1930 who would offer her more protection than her former producer-director and her husband combined. Cedric Gibbons, MGM art director, reportedly first caught sight of Dolores when she filmed Trail of 98 for Clarence Brown at Metro in 1928. At lunch or on break, he would go to visit the set and watch Dolores work. Later, he attended a big industry event and saw her again. When Dolores arrived, the room fell silent for nearly 20 seconds as guests stared at the exquisite beauty in a white satin gown. Women present felt like running to the salon. Men who witnessed her arrival were so stunned by her beauty they declined an introduction. It would be like meeting a work of art, said one man. In 1930, Cedric enlisted the help of Marion Davies and William Randolph Hearst to arrange a meeting. They were sat next to each other at dinner one night, and afterwards, Cedric gave Dolores a tour of the Hearst Zoo. He was Hollywood royalty, with exceptional style and success in the film colony. Six weeks after they met, Cedric proposed, and Dolores accepted. Despite earlier interviews, after her divorce from Jaime, where she was adamant that marriage was not in her future anytime soon, Dolores took the plunge. When asked about her change of heart, Dolores explained the big difference between the two men. Jaime was jealous of the air she breathed, of the work she did, the people she spoke with, the publicity, everything. But Cedric was confident and secure in his own work and career. He didn't need her for his own career. In Metro, Cedric supervised six unit directors, 20 draftsmen, a dozen office staff, and 2,000 artisans. He was the man who insisted on three-dimensional sets from the start of his film career. In 1932, Fortune magazine ran a profile on Irving Thalberg, the boy genius, head of production for MGM Studio. Irving, on his part, refused to take credit for the studio's success. He gave all the credit to two men, Cedric Gibbons, art director, and Adrian, costume director. It's easy to understand how Cedric won Dolores over, especially with the home he built for her, a dreamy Art Deco mansion. Their home was essentially one big white set, Cedric's trademark for MGM throughout the 1930s. He filled it with thoughtful touches. Dolores loved the rain, so Cedric rigged a water system outside a pair of windows, providing her with the pleasure of rain whenever she wanted. They were together for 10 years until Orson Welles came along and Dolores left Cedric. In 1940, it might have been impossible to resist Orson Welles. He had been obsessed with Dolores ever since he saw her on screen in Bird of Paradise with Joel McRae in 1932. In 1940, Wells was at the height of his creative and physical magnetism. They were together throughout the production of Citizen Kane. Dolores was one of 
13 women chosen as the Wampus Baby Upcoming Stars of 1926. The Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers had selected Dolores Del Rio along with Joan Crawford, Mary Astor, Faye Ray, Mary Bryan, Dolores Costello, Vera Reynolds, Janet Gaynor, Sally O'Neill, Marceline Day, Edna Marion, Joyce Compton, and Sally Long as stars to watch out for. During Wampus Baby appearances, the women took turns parading across the stage in gowns. One night, Dolores walked in silence, wearing a white gown. Backstage, she was upset, thinking that the audience was bored with her. Fay Ray intervened and pushed Dolores back on stage to receive the applause that broke out amongst a stunned audience. Dolores took the stage and walked back and forth for as long as the applause lasted, which was more than seven minutes, longer than it was for any of the other girls. Two years later, in 1928, Wampus held a contest for the biggest star among the 91 former Wampus babies. Dolores Del Rio won, with more than 200,000 votes cast for her meteoric rise in pictures. Dolores became a star in Raoul Walsh's picture, What Price Glory? They worked together again for the loves of Carmen. In case you forgot how very long Walsh's career was in Hollywood, The Loves of Carmen was a remake of the version he did with Theta Berra in 1915. In silent pictures, Dolores had a grueling production schedule. She began one picture as soon as she finished the last. At the box office, her pictures were critically and commercially successful. She became exhausted and developed a series of ailments. But Dolores Del Rio was an international sensation. She transitioned into sound pictures with as much grace as she exhibited in her films. In his memoir, Bud Schulberg has a story about how she was perceived in Mexico. When he was a teenager, his father, BP, was the head of production for Paramount Studio, and he took the family by train to Mexico on business. Fellow first-class passengers included two elderly sisters, wealthy ladies dressed in somber black from head to toe. Although the Schulbergs didn't speak Spanish, Spanish, they managed to let the passengers know that BP was a big man in Hollywood. The ladies wanted to know if they knew Dolores Del Rio. They did. Lupe Vlez, yes, they knew her too. Noses in the air, the women replied, Dolores Del Rio, si. Lupe Velez, no. For the duration of the journey, the ladies periodically repeated the verdict to the Schulbergs. Dolores Del Rio, si. Lupe Velez, no. Bud Schulberg didn't understand and asked his father. To the teenage boy, they were both beautiful movie stars. His father explained the class difference that Dolores came from aristocrats, but Lupe's mother had been a streetwalker. Bud learned that class distinctions applied even to the rich and famous. As soon as she arrived in Hollywood, Dolores established friendships with women that lasted for her life. Faye Ray, Greta Garbo, Marlena Dietrich, and the costume designer Irene Lentz were among her lifelong friends. 
Marlena once declared that Dolores Del Rio was the most beautiful woman who ever appeared on the screen. No one did more to boost Irene's career than Dolores. In 1926, Irene opened a dress shop near the University of Southern California. College girls would hang out in the boutique smoking cigarettes because they weren't allowed everywhere else on campus. One day, Dolores Del Rio called in and bought an evening gown that cost only $45. Irene noted that most women, especially in Hollywood, would never have revealed the secret. By contrast, she said Dolores told everyone in the film colony, and Irene's shop soon filled with film stars. Irene developed a star clientele that included women like Gloria Swanson, Irene Dunn, Joan Bennett, Joan Crawford, and Norma Shearer. Irene's designs gained recognition, and in 1932, she started designing for films. Dolores was such good friends with Irene that she introduced her to her brother-in-law, Elliot Gibbons. Irene and Elliot were married in 1935. They say you can't go home again, but that wasn't true for Dolores Del Rio. When she left Hollywood in 1942, she returned home and helped to usher in a golden era of Mexican cinema. Dolores was adored, nearly venerated as a living screen goddess by directors, crews, co-stars, and audiences. Cinematographer Gabriel Figueroa recalled Dolores instilled in all of us a kind of mysticism. She had as much work in front of the camera as she wanted for as long as she wanted, which is really the dream of any film star. She embodied a modern Mexica in art and style. The following books helped me to write this episode. She Walks in Beauty by Mitzi Cummings from the March 1938 edition of Photoplay magazine. Dolores Del Rio, Beauty and Light and Shade by Linda B. Hall. On the other hand, an autobiography by Faye Ray. MGM Style, Cedric Gibbons and the Art of the Golden Age of Hollywood by Howard Guttner. Buzz, The Life and Art of Busby Berkeley by Jeffrey Spivak. Each Man in His Time by Raoul Walsh. Creating the Illusion, a fashionable history of Hollywood costume designers by Jay Jorgensen and Donald Scoggins. Women I've Undressed by Ori Kelly. Thanks so much for listening. Please join me next time for episode 71 when I talk about Zsa Zsa Gabor in Moulin Rouge from 1952. Thanks very much.